0: Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are hearing from God's Word with this Sunday's sermon. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Let's pray. Heavenly Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have met us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that as we come to hear your word this morning, you would give us eyes to hear, sorry, ears to hear, Lord, eyes to see you, Lord, and a heart that yearns for you more and more. Lord, keep us attentive to your word and and challenge us by it, we would pray. Amen. Amen. So as we come into uh, this Advent season, I would like to share this morning the story of an old man, a man who we probably all know about and we can probably all relate with. He has had his faith his whole life. Ever since he was a boy, he's grown up knowing the Bible, uh, being taught the Bible, teaching the Bible. And the reality is now as an old man, he's just grown used to it. It's just part of his life. It's just part of the runnings. Now, he knows the Bible well, very well, in fact, but there's no life, there's no energy to how he responds to it. He's given his life to serve God, in fact. But there is a a chance that he maybe sees this as kind of a one-way service. He does this for God because he has to, but there's nothing back. And him and his wife, they have significant unanswered prayers that they now feel God is never going to answer. But this old man had his life turned upside down by God. His life was transformed As not just his life was transformed, but everything around him was transformed. As I say, we probably all know this story. It often comes out at Christmas, but I don't want us to miss the significance of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this morning, I want us to really focus in on Zechariah's song that he sings in Luke chapter 1. See, his world has been turned upside down in the last year. A few months ago, his unmarried niece came to stay after having been told by an angel that she was pregnant with the Messiah. His wife, who has been barren for years, has just given birth to a prophet. And God had recently made him mute, and he hasn't been able to speak for the last nine months. And that's where we find him in this moment, in verse 68. He's just seen John presented in the temple circumcised and and now becoming part of the Jewish people. And he suddenly bursts forth in song. So let's read Luke chapter one, verses 68 to 79 together. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David The way of peace. Amazing. And there's three elements in this song that I really want us to pick up on, to be stirred by. And the first element is Zechariah's joy, his response to what God is doing in the present, his response to the knowledge that God is sending salvation. See, as I say, Zechariah has just seen his son come into the temple, and as he's circumcised, this is the sign that he is now joining the people of God. It's as though the promise that was made months ago that this boy would be a prophet of the Lord is now being realized as he's now part of us. He's taken the covenant sign. His son now belongs to God's people. And there's so much symbolism in this scene. He's now going from there for the rest of his life to announce the Messiah. Now in this scene, Zechariah knows what he's seeing he knows what it means. It means salvation for God's people is coming at last. And so that's why he's bursting forth in song. Now, one of the things I love about the song is that this isn't the song of someone who sat down at the desk and tried to uh, perfect their theology and perfect the rhyming form and is making it all very good so that people can sing it with a clear conscience. No, this is just the expression, the explosive expression of joy in the knowledge of what God is doing. You know, I'm, I'm of the opinion that the best theology comes out of experience, uh, experiencing God's incredible tender mercy. He's lit on fire by what God is doing. See, Zechariah is just like us. He has a sense that this world that he lives in is broken. It's not as it's supposed to be. And it's not just everything around him is broken. He's part of the problem. He senses his own sin. He, he talks about how, well, he doesn't, but he, he makes reference to the fact that just as his fathers were in uh, exile in Egypt, they were imprisoned, so too are we in exile, in bondage, in our own sense of decay, our own mess, our own separation from God. But now what he's hearing and what he's seeing is that God has visited his people and will now redeem them. He is going to launch his rescue mission. In fact, he has launched his rescue mission. And so joy is flowing out of this deep-seated feeling in his bones. Something's not right, but God is fixing it. He's sending salvation. These problems are being sorted. You know, in verse 78, he uses this image of the sunrise rising upon us. The light is dawning on this gloomy night. Can you feel his joy as you read this? Because this isn't the song of someone who merely knows things about the Bible. This isn't a man who's simply regurgitating truth that he just knows is true. It's a profound statement that by someone who has been struck by the wonder of God. And I really want us to notice this, that he isn't simply joyous because something good is happening for him. He's rejoicing because he's seeing everything around him change because God is redeeming his people. Now, we'd probably give him license to be swallowed up in his own joy. His wife has been barren for years. He has never had a child. That must be a real burden for him to bear. And that really significant thing, which has burdened him and his wife down for all these years God has answered that, but God has answered it in such a way that now the answered prayer kind of pales into comparison because God is doing something far more magnanimous. Yes, they've got the son, but notice he never even mentions the fact that God has finally answered that prayer. He's simply overjoyed by the fact that the son that he has been given is announcing the Messiah. It affects everyone. His joy is a a corporate joy, not simply an individual one. It's not that the sun is shining on me. It's the sun will shine on us. He goes far beyond this individual good news. He's rejoicing in the same good news that we enjoy today. God's salvation. It's not even merely that God has come to set us free from decay, but it also the joy that we can worship God. You now notice in Verse 4, it says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Now, Zechariah is a priest in the temple. Zechariah is kind of on the front lines of serving God. This priest who goes into the temple is now saying, my desire is that I can serve God without fear. In other words, he is trembling every time he goes into that temple, because he knows that the divide that exists between God and mankind is still very much in force. And yet now God is bridging the divide, a cause for joy. As I say, he's finally a father. And yet the only mention of his son in this is in the context of announcing the Messiah. And you child will be called a prophet of the most high and you'll be You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of their sins. God has answered his prayer in a way far bigger than he could ever imagined. And for someone who has been stuck in a rut with his faith, who was in disbelief when God made a promise so that God made him mute. He is now energized by God's salvation that God has acted to save his people. So the question for us, are we excited not simply by individual answers to prayer, but by the sheer fact that God has mercy on us, tender mercy. Is that something that we take for granted? Jesus saves a phrase that we use very often. Wow. (laughs) What an amazing thing that we can even say that word. That we can say God is a God who saves. Do we value God's salvation like Zechariah is right now? And if you're not a Christian, you must feel that same sense that Zechariah has, that this world is broken. You must see it. And now hear this, hear what Zechariah is saying, that there is an answer to this mess, that the, the mess is being fixed and restored by Jesus that you too, like Zechariah, can find the answer to that problem. God has sent a savior. And so we've seen Zechariah's kind of present response, his, his joy as he hears that God is sa- sending a savior. But there's also something really important in this song, and that is that his joy isn't simply a response to the present, but it's a response to what he knows from the past. See, so Zechariah is a man who has... He may well have been stuck in a rut, but he has had hope. He knows the Bible and he now knows it's being fulfilled. Zechariah's hope isn't simply based on what he's currently seeing. If you just notice how many references there are in this song to the Old Testament, to all the things that have gone before, to the promises that God has made in the past, And so one of the reasons that his joy is so explosive is because of how deeply rooted it was. You know, and you say, hang on, isn't this the person who you were saying was just ticking along earlier, who was stuck in a rut, all those kind of things. And now you're saying he has deep rooted joy. Well, I don't mean deep rooted in terms of going into every area of his life. I don't mean that he was aware of these amazing promises and they energized him all the time. What I mean is, he knew them and they may have got to the back of his mind. But when you see a plant growing, the roots are invisible until the plant shoots up. And for him, he was looking at his, himself and seeing nothing but soil. But he knew those promises. He knew the story of God. And so now the Holy Spirit has come upon him and filled him. Now all those things that he simply knew are no longer theory, but our electrifying reality its as if he's saying all those promises, which I knew are now coming true in the same way that you wouldn't invite someone around for a fire and then present a log soaked in petrol. However, However, if you just bring a match out and put it on, suddenly you've got a fire going. This man was soaked in God's word. He was soaked in the promises. He was as unimpressive as a log covered in petrol Nonetheless, the fuel was on him. And so he was unexcited by it, yet soaked in it. And now, as the Holy Spirit comes, as the fire of God comes, he is set ablaze. What was once theory, God will do such and such. What was once routine, read the Bible, go to the temple, learn bits, is now life-giving. As he sees they aren't theory, but promises. And he's now very glad that he was aware of said promises. So what are these promises that have caused him to react like this? What has energized him so much? He talks about the, the, uh, God's promises to David, the oath made with Abraham, his holy covenant. He references the Exodus story. Now, what relation do these will have to this explosive joy that John is coming and Jesus is coming? What is the, the link here? What do they have to do with the sun now shining down on us? As I say, he references the three major covenants in the Old Testament, one with Abraham, one with Moses, and one with David. Now, in case you don't already know, a covenant is a a life and death agreement made by God with his people. It includes promises and conditions. And God's covenants really are the structure of the whole Bible, how we find where we are in God's history. And you notice as you read through the Bible that God's covenants don't cancel each other out. You don't go to a point and then stop and start again. Rather, they add to each other. They bring more promises. They reveal more about God's plans. And the major covenants are with Abraham, where God promises life to him and to his offspring. He promises a land where they can dwell. And he promises that they will be his people, that he will be theirs and they will be his And when God makes this promise with Abraham, it's really what launches the whole story of the Old Testament. It forms the structure of the Old Testament, that God will form a people for himself and give them a land. But it's not merely, I'll have a people and a land. The promise that God makes is so that he can dwell with his people, so that he can be their God and they can be his people that God may dwell in the midst of them as he did in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You know, if you've ever read through Genesis and wondered why Abraham pitches a tent every time he meets with God, it seems a bit odd. He met with God and then he pitched a tent. Well, it's because this image is the tent represents this dwelling place. As he meets with God, God is reminding him of his promise to dwell among them. And so after Abraham, 400 years later, we get to the beginning of Exodus and we find that God's people are now in bondage, let alone being free to worship God. They aren't even in their own land. But we read in Exodus 2 that because of God's covenant with Abraham, he will rescue his people. And so he does. He takes them by the hand. He leads them out of Egypt. What does he do? he makes a covenant with them. In the light of his gracious salvation, he covenants with them that they would be his people and serve him and obey him and that he may dwell among them. So he gives them the tabernacle, the dwelling place, the tent. And so they receive the law from God, not as a means of salvation, but as a badge of obedience to show that they are God's people, to be a people dwelling among a holy God. So now God has a people, God has a land, and they have a system of worship and laws. And then hundreds of years later, God then makes a covenant with David, that God will establish the throne of David and give the throne to his descendant. That He will raise from the descendants a king who will reign in justice and righteousness over Israel, and that David's line will build the temple of God to dwell among his people. If you, if you read two Samuel seven, where God makes his covenant with David, there's a really interesting point where God is saying, you will build me a house, i.e. the temple. No, I'll build you a house. And there's this link that as God establishes David's line, he's also establishing a dwelling place among them. And so when you read through the Bible, the hope of these covenants, the expectation of these covenants is what defines God's people. And whilst all these covenants contain a different element um, you know, a land in one, laws and worship in another, a king and a temple in another, did you notice that all of them at their heart have the same promise that one day God will dwell among His people? They all unfold that hope. If you read through the Old Testament, just notice how many times you see the words, "I will be God to you and your people." That is God's. Aim to dwell among his people. That's the story of the whole Bible, I would say. This is what Zechariah was anticipating. Looking forward to this, when his deep feeling that this isn't right can only be met with the reality that God is going to dwell among us. And despite the fact that he's just ticking along, despite the fact he's spending all these years just soaking in petrol. Now the Holy Spirit has come to him. John has been born. Jesus is coming and he's been set ablaze with joy unspeakable. God is coming to dwell among his people. God is interested in his people. He isn't the unfeeling God who is just out there watching he is the God who is acting to know his people, to finally dwell among his people, just as he's promised to do in his covenants. This is cause for overwhelming joy. So the question for us is, do we know our Bible like Zechariah? Are we being Discipline to soak ourselves in the petrol of God's word. If we were in Zechariah's position and we were given this promise, would we know how big a deal it is that God is now fulfilling that promise? Because it's not simply a chore, we'd be missing out on joy. Do we know the story that we belong to? Could we share in Zechariah's overwhelming joy? It's, It's us we're shooting in the foot if we don't. In the same way that Zechariah was anticipating the coming of the Messiah, we're now in this funny position and it comes out every Advent that whilst we know about the first coming, we're looking forward to the second coming. We're looking forward to when Jesus comes back to reign forever, to complete his reign. And so we can anticipate that. Are we excited for it? Do we have the same joy for it? Or are we Zechariah before he's been exploded? So we've seen how Zechariah responds to the present promise that God is sending salvation. We've seen how he is now reflected on the past, that God is fulfilling the whole story of the Old Testament. But now I want us to focus not on Zechariah's joy or on Zechariah's hope, but on Zechariah's great nephew, Jesus. How does Zechariah respond to the future? That as we've already seen, well, as we see in Matthew, that he is called Emmanuel, God with us. And the goodness of that story of Jesus is still as fresh today as it was back then. Now, bear in mind that Zechariah doesn't even know what Jesus is going to do. He doesn't know about the cross. He doesn't know about the resurrection. He doesn't know about any of these things. He simply knows that Jesus is coming and that means something, that the sun will shine on us. He knows that all of the previous covenants were pointing to him That he is the substance of all of them. Abraham was promised by God, in your offspring shall the nations be blessed. Jesus is that blessing. Moses was promised that the Lord would provide a Passover lamb to save us from God's righteous wrath for our breaking of his holy law. Jesus is our lamb. David was promised a king to reign over the kingdom and execute God's justice. Jesus is our king. But most importantly, all of these covenants are fulfilled because Jesus is God with us. Because in Jesus, we see the most profound picture of God dwelling among his people as a person. God chooses to fulfill these covenants in a, in a way that very few would have predicted, I would, I would uh, imagine. I don't think that many um, Jews in the first century were looking forward to God becoming a human. It's as though God has promised a Fiat Punto and turned around and given them a Lamborghini. Just think on that title that we call Jesus Emmanuel. That we can talk about a person and say, God with us. What other religion, what other worldview can do that? What other worldview can talk about the interested God who is so passionate about winning his people back to him that he would become one of them? No one else can say that. No one else can say that that is what their God would do. And the funny thing is we often ruin the story for ourselves. You know, the, the, the problem with knowing a story is that you know how it ends. For instance, if I were to tell you the story of Jonah, Jonah is written in, in a very special way so that when he jumps off the boat, you're supposed to think there he is, he's dead. And then the whale comes along and you go, oh, he's not dead. But because we all know the story, we go, and this is the bit where he falls off so he can get eaten by a whale. Or if I tell you the story of a, of a film that we'd all known, I remember the first time I watched a film with like a big twist, And I I remember having my head just so kind of rattled by it. I was not expecting that. And I remember kind of going a bit mad and Googling films with good twists. And one of the uh, responses was uh, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back when Darth Vader reveals he's Luke's father. And I was thinking, it's not a twist. Everyone knows it's coming. I was thinking, I only think that because I'm so familiar with the story. But if we try and kind of take a step back and, and think about this, There's the story of God's people. There's the story of God coming to be with his people. What would we kind of expect it to go? Maybe we'd expect a king from David's line who was just as good as David, who maybe united even more countries than David did. And just a really good priest who would be in the temple and everyone would look up to. We might think that that's how it's going to go. But instead, God turns around and goes, no, way better than that. How about a king that reigns over the whole earth from heaven? How about a a, a priest who doesn't even need a physical temple, who draws his people together even while they remain where they are? How about I, the Lord, become one of you and dwell among you in that way? Wow. Wow. Be surprised by that twist. Find yourself back in in the Old and the New Testaments going, Wow. God decided to do it like that. Why would he do it? Except for the simple fact that he loves his people and desires to show more grace than we can imagine. We don't need a temple now. We don't need a specific patch of land. Why? Because God is with us. And God will be with us when Jesus returns to the earth that he has filled with his glory. As I say, no other belief about God can talk about the interested God, the one who steps down into his own creation. So let the knowledge that God is interested affect your whole life. Let's pray like people who know that we are praying to the interested God, that God has made it plain that he wants to dwell with us. He isn't content to simply be found in a building that God has taken the most magnanimous leap to condescend to you, that he has met you as a human. So the question is, are we going to respond to him? Are we going to make the steps to come to him? Are you happy as long as he's simply coming to you, or are you going to respond in faith, love, and adoration? So we often teach children at Christmas that we give gifts because the wise men gave gifts. But Christmas is about something far more fundamental than that. God gave the gift that all of humanity is yearning for. That God would dwell with us. He would know our pain. that He would know our joy. Not because we've earned it, but because it's a gift from a very loving father. You know, there's that carol where we sing, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's so true. All of our hopes, all of our fears, our pains, our sorrows, our joys, our longings are found in the person of Jesus. So let that stir your heart this Christmas season. God has given the most magnanimous gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our words will always fall short of trying to express the gratitude that we should have and often don't have. But Lord, we pray that as we are uh, stirred by your word, as we're stirred by the whole story that leads to this moment where Jesus comes forth. Lord, help us to see the um, magnanimous reality of that. the, The fact that God has become one of us in order to bring us back to his presence. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to value that, to be energized by that. It's not simply be happy stewing in petrol, but to desire the match that would light us ablaze in the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to value your word. Lord, help teach us that without your word, we would be empty. So Lord, we just pray that that reality of God descending to us, the promise that God will dwell with us that has been met in the person of Jesus. Lord, we just pray that you would implant that so deeply in our hearts and that you would affect our whole life as a result of it. The way we pray, the way we sing, the way we worship, the way we use our tongue, the way we speak to others, the way that we value what we value in life. Lord, may all the hopes and fears of all the years be met in thee tonight, in Jesus Christ, our King, our Messiah, our Lord, our God. Amen.